let's take our scriptures and let's get to Matthew chapter 10. I, part of why I'm here this morning, even though my voice may be missing, is that I am eager to get on with Matthew chapter 10. I actually prepared what we're going to study this morning well before Shepherd's Conference. So this has been on my heart and on my mind for some time. And uh, I am eager for us to spend our moments this morning in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, which will be where we focus our attention together this morning. You know, every single time you and I open up our Bibles, we bring challenges to our study of God's word. Every single day when you crack open your scriptures for private worship before God, which I trust you're faithful to pursue, to develop an affection and a love in a relationship with the Lord. As you open his word, you bring with your fingers challenges to understanding and studying God's word. The number one challenge, of course, is your condition. You and I are sinful by nature, redeemed with a new creation on the inside, yes, but still battling with our flesh and the effects of our flesh in sin. And so sin comes with us when we open our Bibles. Therefore, we often are in a situation where we will struggle to understand the word of God because of the presence and the effects of sin on our minds and on our hearts. Often we come to the Bible with a faulty understanding of what it's for, which leads us down a path that really doesn't help us in our study of scripture. Maybe you study the scripture really kind of like a treasure hunt. And when you open up the Bible, you just are looking for that nugget for the day. Oftentimes, God is faithful to give you a nugget for the day, but that is not how God intends for you to understand his word. It is not just a treasure hunt. Some of you come with an encyclopedia mindset. Your concordance is well-worn. The best resource you've ever received is the topical Bible. Because now you can know what the Bible says about any number of things in a moment. But the word of God is not an encyclopedia. It is not a textbook for us. It is the revelation of the person and work of the living word, Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of the redemptive work of God so that we might know him. So that we can sing the song, Knowing You with Truth. The only reason we can know God is because of the revelation that is ours on the pages of scripture. So we bring faulty methods and we also bring every single time we open the word of God, we bring a cultural gap to the scriptures, right? I mean, there, there are major cultural gaps in your reading of the Bible and in your life. Maybe you have, I don't know where you are in your scripture reading. If you read through the Bible in a year, maybe you're now into the um, later parts of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. You're in the book of Moses and you're coming to the end of that section. If you are, you may be in one of the biggest cultural gaps you've ever known. You're reading things on the page that you just have no concept of. You, you have no visual image of. You've never been to a city of refuge. You don't know anything about the year of Jubilee. You've never had um, an experience of a debtor's prison. You've never seen a sacrifice. You've never seen a priest who has spent his entire day slitting the throats 
of animals and is covered in blood. You, you just have no visual. Anything that you have when you think of the temple is skewed by just the pictures that you've seen. You have no experiential understanding. So there's this cultural gap. There's this distance between us and the Bible. And that causes a strain, a challenge for us as we come to the text of Scripture. There is one other challenge that comes with the study and the reading of God's word. And that is there are portions of God's word that are designed for a certain purpose. And there are other portions that carry a distinct purpose in and of themselves. In other words, there are sections of your Bible that are historical and you're reading them and they are describing to you accounts of what really took place. So for instance, we've just been reading through Genesis in our scripture reading for the last year and a half. We have spent a lot of time in historical information, descriptions of what has taken place, who this person was, how old they were, how many kids they had, what they did, what Joseph's plan was for Egypt, how he worked that out, his, his, his incentive plan for Egypt. All of those descriptive informational items are important for us, but we must handle them differently than the portions of your Bible that speak directly to you and tell you something about what you are to be, how you are to respond to God. So there are portions in your Old Testament, there are portions in your New Testament where you're reading accounts that are descriptive, but they are not prescriptive. We have at least one pharmacist here with us who knows a lot about prescriptions. A prescription is an unreadable little piece of paper that somehow pharmacists can read and it has an also unreadable signature on it and you take it and you hand it to the pharmacist and that was the doctor's orders for you. So there are portions of your Bible that are prescriptive. They are God's orders for you. And there are other portions of your scriptures that are not prescriptive. They are descriptive. And we come to them seeing the glory of God put on display through historical accounts, through narrative. Without that understanding of the difference between different portions of the Bible, you can land in some crazy places. If you are to come to certain texts with just a purely prescriptive mindset, everything I read in the Bible, I'm going to do. I'm going to view it all as prescriptive. It's all the doctor's orders. It's all God's orders for my life. Then you are going to have a very difficult time. You're going to have a difficult time, most importantly, because you are going to miss the very meaning, the very intent that the Holy Spirit had for you when he inspired these writings. The key to effective study of descriptive portions of our Bible is seeing the eternal truths that are represented in those accounts and seeing the principles that are clearly put on display through those accounts. And so this morning we have one of those sections. We have a very contextual descriptive event in verses 5 through 15. We have a very specific scenario that is recounted for us. 
And interestingly enough, Jesus is actually giving instruction in this paragraph, but he is not giving instruction in the general sense of prescribing what Christianity is to look like, what his kingdom citizens are to live like, which is what he did at the Sermon on the Mount. Here we find a description by Matthew of a very specific setting, a very specific situation. We must come to this looking for the eternal truths, looking for the principles that rise right out of this descriptive paragraph in our Bible. This is critical for us, lest we come to some very errant conclusions from our study of the scriptures. All right, let's all swallow. Okay. Okay, just before we get into Matthew chapter 10, let me just quickly walk you back through, turn back just a few pages to Matthew chapter 1. Let's just catch up. If you haven't been here through Matthew, this is going to be the bird's eye view of Matthew 1 to 10. This will be the flyby version. We're at 3,000 feet here, just not even seeing the details, but seeing the big themes. In chapter 1, verse 1 down through verse 17, you remember this, we meet the king right off the bat. The king is known by his lineage and his lineage is prophesied in the Old Testament and he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. So we meet Jesus through his lineage and this is the first statement of his kingship, his descendant status from David and Abraham. In chapter one, we continue in verse 18 down through verse 25, seeing the king And he is known here through his miraculous birth, which is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic words. So Jesus is the Messiah by lineage. He's also the Messiah by birth. He is the God man. Virgin Mary birthed this miraculous one. In chapter two, we see continued the theme of prophecy through chapter two. The king is known by his Status as the one who fulfills all messianic prophecies. And so Matthew just outlines again and again and again and again throughout chapter 2, showing us that which was spoken by the prophets has come to pass in Jesus. He's the one you should believe. That's Matthew's point. Matthew is an evangelist, and he's trying to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no need for waiting or looking. There is only need for repentance and belief. Okay? Chapter 3. Verses 1 through 12, the king is made known through his prophet, John. John the Baptist is the final prophet. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. And here John preaches and proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it culminates in verse 13, when the king is made known by his father's testimony at his baptism. Jesus comes to John, you remember this, and says, I want to be baptized. John says, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. John has said that he's not worthy to even unlatch Jesus' sandals. And when he baptizes Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, Matthew says, if you needed anything else, the Father spoke at the baptism and we heard him say, this is his Son. No more waiting, no more wondering, no more watching for the Messiah. Repent and believe the kingdom is here. We go on in chapter 4 and we see that the king is validated through his temptation. Jesus is not only the God-man, he is the sinless God-man. He is the one who has withstood all temptation. 
And the king is seen in all of his vindication. He is validated. He is the perfect one. Chapter 4 continues in verses 12 through 25 when the kingdom is proclaimed by the king's preaching. We turn that corner coming out of the wilderness, the 40 days in the wilderness where Jesus is tempted. And now Jesus turns his focus to preaching and proclaiming that he is in fact the Messiah, that the kingdom has arrived. It is on sight. The kingdom is defined by the authoritative word of God or the word of the king, rather, in verses, verse 1 of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 7 and verse 28, <coughs> 29, rather. Chapters 5 through 7, we spent months and months unpacking the glories of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, or what could be known as the Sermon on the Plateau, where Jesus, in his authoritative words, clearly defines his kingdom and his kingdom citizens. Chapters 8 and 9, the kingdom is not just uh, defined by the king's authoritative words, but the king himself is validated by his authoritative actions. In chapters 8 and 9, he heals and heals and heals and casts out demons and casts out demons. And there is no disease that is greater than his power. There is no demon that is greater than his power. He is the all-sufficient Savior. And that brings us to chapter 10. Really, at the very end of chapter 9, we could almost connect verse 35 into chapter 10 when we see Jesus turn his attention in verse 35 to his kingdom mission. He goes from city to city to village to village and he is consumed with his mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is completely captured by the will of his father and his kingdom. That brought us to chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4. And we saw 12 regular guys who were set apart, who were called, who were empowered, who were sent out by an extraordinary Christ. And if there was a theme from our last time in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it was don't waste your life trusting in your own abilities, trusting in your own capabilities, your own power, your own incentive, your own initiative. Don't waste your life comparing your abilities to someone else's, but focus your attention and your trust and confidence on your all-sufficient Savior who has all power, who has all authority, who has all capability of providing for you everything you need to be effective for His kingdom. This is your King. And that brings us to chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, where this morning we'll see a different angle on the same reality. Don't waste your life trusting in yourself. Trust your sufficient Savior. And in verses 5 through 15, don't waste your life living by your own agenda, obeying your own commands. Give yourself entirely to the lordship of your master, none other than Jesus of Nazareth, your Messiah. Let's read these verses together and we'll jump into them in our study. These 12, these are the same 12 apostles that we met in verses 3, verses 2 through 4 at the beginning of the chapter. They've just been listed out for us. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. So here then is Jesus' instruction. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, 
Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the labor deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It's an amazing statement in verse number 15. Now, what I believe we can see and what we will look at this morning are two simple realities that come from this paragraph. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus gave contextual instruction, very, very specific contextual instruction. That is, these instructions were focused on this this group of 12 people in this particular setting for this short-term mission trip. So Jesus gives these instructions. We're going to look at what happens in the details of verses 5 through 15. But then secondly, and most critical for our practice and our understanding, the Spirit intends current implications. You see, when you read verses 5 through 15, you are absolutely correct to say, this seems like a very specific setting that is hard for me to apply to my, my daily life. I have a hard time with the details meaning anything to me tomorrow. I mean, I'm going to work. I'm struggling in my marriage My stocks are just crashing and burning. What does 5 to 15 really have to offer? And it has everything to offer because you're a careful Bible student and your mind is telling you 2 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. It's beneficial to me. So somehow 5 to 15 and the details of what to take and what to say and where to go and what to do Somehow this is beneficial, this is profitable for my life. And that is because the Spirit of God, in inspiring Matthew to record this event, intended for you very current implications upon your life. And we're going to look at those together. Okay? So first of all, Jesus gives contextual instruction in verses 5 through 15. And Jesus is incredibly detailed in this section. This is amazing. He'll repeat some of these with 72 that he sends out, we find in Luke chapter 10. These instructions are not just for this setting, but they are very specific in this time period. He'll give them to others, but he gives them to the 12 here. And notice the details of what Jesus tells the 12. Okay? First of all, Jesus tells them where to go. Verses 5 and 6. Or we could say he tells them where not to go. Verse 5, his instruction starts with go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. And verse 6 says, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus begins by saying, I want to send you out with a consuming passion for the kingdom mission, but don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. In fact, if you come along a village and you find out that that village is a Gentile village that's predominantly run by Gentile people, leave. Avoid it. Don't go in there. Don't give them a tract. Don't talk to them about the gospel. Don't preach. Don't heal. Don't cast out demons. Just keep moving. 
think to yourself, this is amazing. Jesus tells them, don't talk to people, certain people, about the kingdom. Why would he do that? First of all, there's a regional aspect that we need to understand. We're talking about the region of Galilee. And if you look at your Bible maps with, I know you do that all the time. You live back there in your Bible maps. If you do that, you're looking at the map. The Sea of Galilee is up above, up above Jerusalem. And that region is where Jesus is ministering. On either side of that region and above that region, there were Gentile people groups that were living in that, in that part of the country. They were Many Gentile villages represented on the east, west, and the north part of Galilee. And the southern region of Galilee was Samaritan. So Jesus is here with his 12 disciples. And he says, now when you go out, I want you to stay tight to the Sea of Galilee. I do not want you going into these other villages of the Gentile people. And don't go down into the Samaritan villages either. Surely we can know that Jesus did not give this instruction because the gospel was never to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half Gentile, half Jew. Acts chapter one gives us a little insight into this. Jesus has been resurrected. He's ascending and he says to them that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. Right? You remember this section? Acts chapter one and verse eight. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. First in... Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then ultimately it will span out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Everywhere will receive the gospel message. Here's another key to this. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. Very simply, Jesus here at the foundational time of his kingdom mission is focusing on the first and primary recipients of the promise of the Messiah. Daniel read the scriptures to us this morning and then reminded our hearts as we joined him in praying to the Father of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, his faithfulness to Jacob, who is known also as Israel. And the great nation that came from Jacob and from Abraham was the recipients. They were the recipients of the promises of the Messiah. Jesus says, I want you to focus first on the Jewish people, first on the chosen nation. Focus entirely on them on this trip. This is why it's important for us to see this passage as descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Because you would run into some major contradictions if this was prescriptive for today. Right? If, if we walked away from this and we said, good, now I know who I'm supposed to talk to and I'm just going to just look for Jewish people, let alone the fact that most of us are Gentiles. We have a real problem here. But leaving that out of the picture, I'm just going to look for Jewish people. I'm not going to talk to Gentiles and I'm certainly not going to talk to Samaritans, even though I don't even know what those people are. But I'm not going to talk to them. If I find one, I'm going to say, are you a Samaritan? And if they say yes, I'm going to leave. That's a real problem. First of all, that's a real problem because Matthew chapter 28 tells you that the great commission is for you to go to everybody and to make disciples of all people. That's a major problem because you're sitting here as a worshiper of Christ, I trust, as a Gentile for the most part. 
So obviously you have contradictions throughout your scriptures that would leave you knowing that this portion of the Bible is descriptive of a time period in which God is working, not prescriptive for the whole of God's demands upon his people. The emphasis is quite clear and the compassion is clear in Jesus' words in verse 6. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These are the lost sheep which Jesus was moved with compassion for as he saw them. In verse 36 of chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus, first of all, starts on, he says, here's where you're not to go and here's where you are to go. And then secondly, in verses 7 and 8, in these contextual instructions, Jesus tells them what to do. He says, I'm not only concerned about where you go on this mission trip, I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to do. Verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's now. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Say, what is going on here? Jesus very simply says, I want you to go with one message. No creativity, no clever outlines, no hunting for good illustrations, no websites for good sermons, um, no stealing from anybody else's material. I don't care what the rabbis say. I want you to go and simply say this. The kingdom's here. The kingdom's here. And in the implication of that is that in saying that the kingdom is here, the Jewish people would have to respond. You understand that the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah to come and inaugurate his kingdom. So for them to say, it's here, you either have to accept that and get with the kingdom program, humble yourself and come before the Messiah as a servant, or you reject it outright and you say it is not here you reject the messiah and ultimately you join with the thousands who scream crucify him crucify the blasphemer who says he's the son of god very simple message but it was to be the message of this mission the kingdom of heaven is at hand So they were to speak a very clear gospel message. And then they were to validate that message by carrying on signs and wonders. In verse 8, they were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. They were to do all of these things after preaching that the gospel or preaching that the kingdom was here to validate that message. In other words, you're going into a town. They don't know you. You're Andrew and you're Peter. And you're fishermen from Galilee. You go into some village that you've never been in before. They have no idea who you are. You say that you're here on behalf of Jesus of Nazareth. You are a, an apostle for him. You're one of his disciples. And you want them to know that he's the Messiah and that the kingdom is at hand. And the village goes, what? Who are you? And on what basis do you say? And the rabbis say, What gives you the right to come into our town and to declare such a message? You're a fool. And so in proclaiming the message of the kingdom, Jesus said, I want you to say something and then I want you to do something. I want you to do miracles. I want you to heal people. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to cast out demons. And I want you to basically leave the people with no option other than that you are from me. 
I'm empowering you because the region clearly knew about Jesus. They clearly knew about his power. We've seen the crowds following him, waiting for his miracles. And his disciples were to go with his power, validating his message. Okay? This also begs for us to understand it within its contextual timing. Jesus delegates this power and yet without the validation of these miracle works, these signs and wonders, the message would have been completely fallen without credibility. But today in the completion of the canon, no longer does the message need validated. No longer does the new covenant need to have miracles attesting to its validity. The new covenant document is completed. We have it in its entirety and it clearly explains the person and the work of Jesus. Therefore, on a Sunday morning, I don't think that an application of this paragraph ought to be for you to be praying that at the close of our message, I would be able to validate what I've said by raising some dead people, by healing some sick people, by casting out demons, by doing these miraculous signs and wonders. The spirit has validated his word. The new covenant is clearly revealed and articulated on the pages of your Bible. Okay. Jesus tells them where to go, tells them what to do. They're not on their own. They're to do exactly what he says. Jesus tells them how to do what they do and say what they say. Look at verses 9 and 10. Beginning really at the end of verse 8, you receive without paying, give without pay. Okay? If you go into a town, you are not to do this as a carnival booth. All right, step right up. There's a winner every time. Two bucks will get you a demon cast out. Three bucks will get you raised from the dead. Um, I guess it would be a relative raised from the dead because you wouldn't be there with three bucks if you're dead. Okay, this is not a carnival act. Jesus says, you got this from me without anything, without any payment. So you're going to give it away without payment. That's understandable. Keep reading. Verse number nine. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. Things are getting a little more hairy. The disciples are standing there and, okay, we got where we're supposed to go. We got what we're supposed to say and do. Okay, we're not going to get paid for this. We're not supposed to be paid to uh, preach the gospel. We're not supposed to be paid to perform miracles. And then Jesus says, and oh, by the way, don't take any money. Don't go to the ATM and get out a bunch of copper. Don't go get your silver or your gold and, and get on your money belt and strap that thing on. Don't, don't even do that. Leave that alone. No money. You don't need money. This trip will not require for you to have money. Thinking, man, this is, this is getting more and more interesting. Verse 10 goes on, no bag. Ladies, can you believe this? No bag. All right? Think about it. I, I look at some of your bags and I cannot help but think of Mary Poppins. And I wait, I wait for a lamp to come out of your bag. No bags, no belongings. You don't get to throw in some food, some, some um, necessity items, no toiletries for the trip, no shaving cream. For the Jewish male, there was no shaving cream. All right, no bag, no bag for you. No, nor do you take two tunics. You don't even get a change of clothes. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. Jesus says, I want you to go to these places. Don't go to these places. I want you to say this. I want you to do this. And here's how I want it to happen. No money is received for doing it. 
no money's taken with you, no bag in preparation, no change of clothes. Nothing is going to be as you assumed it would be. You don't even get to go get a pair of sandals and you don't get to get your staff, which meant a lot to these men as they walked to their main form of transportation. And then he concludes in verse 10, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, why does Jesus say that? He says that because of what he's about to tell them about the homes that they go to. And here's the expectation. Those who receive the gospel will make it possible for you to continue on in this mission. You will not need to prepare. You will not need to take money. You will not need to take a change of clothes and your bag because those who respond rightly, they'll take care of all of those needs. Jesus gives a reckless mission plan as he mobilizes these 12 disciples. Tells them where to go, tells them what to do, and he tells them how they are to go about it. Why? Because the recipients of the gospel ministry were to provide for the needs of these missionaries. There's no doubt that the disciples were feeling the recklessness of what they were about to do. This flew in the face of all common understanding of what a trip consisted of. And yet they were learning that the king and those who would respond to the kingdom message would provide for their every need. Finally then, Jesus, in verses 11 through 15, tells them how to relate to the people they come in contact with. And this is really, really where we hit the cultural gap challenge, okay? We don't really get this so much. Verse 11 says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Now that, that's a challenge in and of itself because what exactly is Jesus talking about and how exactly do they know if they've met a worthy person from that village or town? I think that if we keep reading, we find out. Look at verse number 12. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. So there's the same concept of worthiness of this house. Worthiness of a village, worthiness of a house. What would the worthy people look like or respond like? If, you're, if you find the house is uh, worthy in verse 13, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Take it back. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave the house, when you leave the house or town, And here's the point. Those who are worthy within the village, when they came into a town or village, when they found those who were worthy, it was those who would respond with reception to the message that the kingdom was here. It was those who would say, I've been baptized by John. I've been preparing for this. I believe the Messiah is here. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is. I believe these were the ones who were counted worthy. And if they went to a home and that home Uh, opened their doors to them and they gave their peace, which is a Jewish way of saying the greeting, which was peace to your house, which meant a lot more than saying, how are you today to us? This was not greeting like waving to your neighbor as they drive by. This was a formal greeting that said, I'm expressing, I am giving out love to you. Peace be upon this house. If those people were not worthy, that is, they did not receive the message of the kingdom, they were to take that peace back or take that greeting back and leave that home. This was how they were to relate on their mission trip. Notice 
the cultural gap that we find in verse 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house, that house or town. Now, here's where we start to think, I don't have the slightest idea what is going on here. The only time I shake dust off my shoes is when I'm smacking my golf cleats against each other to try to get the grass out of it. I have no idea what's happening here. The Jews knew. They knew. Because as they traveled throughout the region, as they walked, as they were on their donkey, as they went through a dusty region, and they carried on all their travel, when they were in a Gentile location, and they were leaving the Gentile location and coming back into the Jewish area, coming back where their synagogue was, coming back to the temple in Jerusalem, they would take their clothes and they would shake off the Gentile dust from their clothing. They would take their shoes off and they would clap them together to shake off the Gentile dust. Why? So that there was no opportunity for them to defile themselves ceremonially by carrying on themselves, on their person, Gentile filth. This is from the Old Testament. And Jesus says, when you're in a Jewish village and they don't receive the word of the kingdom, you stand in front of their house and you take off your shoes and you clap them together. You go to the village and you stand in the gate and you take your tunic and you you sweep off the dust. You say, what does that mean? Culturally, that means I'm treating you as if you're a Gentile. It's unbelievable. That's offensive. Jesus says, these individuals are marking themselves out as those who are opposed to the kingdom mission of Jesus himself. It's incredible. Jesus tells them where to go, tells them what to do, tells them how to do it, and then he tells them how to relate to the people who receive their ministry. Now, there is one final verse in our passage that means something to us very much. Verse 15 says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Does your mind bring you back to Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember anything about Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Remember what happened there? An angel came from God. An angel came to Lot who was living in Sodom, right? Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of like Minneapolis, St. Paul. So that's what that's like. Sodom and Gomorrah, right next to each other. Twin cities. Lot's living in Sodom. An angel from God comes to Lot to declare judgment and to tell him to get out. And the men of the, the, men of the city gather together and they come up with the most perverted plan of how they would like to enjoy the angel's presence. Lot preserves the angel. Lot leaves with his family after much, uh, much warning from God, much gracious warning. And as they're leaving, Sodom and Gomorrah are literally consumed by fire from heaven. God consumes them. And you remember that Lot's wife, she loved living in Sodom so much. She could hardly bear to think of her house being destroyed, her friends being destroyed. And she turned back to look. You remember this? And when she turned back to look, she was instantly turned to a pillar of salt. In other words, she disintegrated as well. God was very serious about his holiness being put on display in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's what God says. Here's what Jesus tells the 12. 
He says that when you leave these places, clap your sandals together, shake the dust off your clothes, showing them what it means to reject the kingdom message. And then this, it'll be more bearable for Sodom in the judgment than for these individuals. You say, why is that? It'll be more bearable because Sodom had an angel come and warned them of God's impending wrath. The Jewish villages and the Jewish families had none other than the Son of God in their very presence. And his apostles came declaring the message of the kingdom and in rejecting it, they were rejecting so much greater revelation. In the eyes of the judge, their denial is so much greater than the denial of Sodom and Gomorrah. And really that bridges well to our second simple reality this morning, I hope helpful from this text. And that is that the Spirit intends current implications. And we'll start at the end. He intends current implications. And let's just think about this. The king will judge all. And there are some eternal truths that come from verse 14 and verse 15 that you and I must consider together. Number one, those who reject Jesus Christ will suffer judgment from God. It's as real as the seat you're sitting in. Hell is coming. Judgment day is coming. And those who reject will suffer. It will be an unbearable suffering for them. Number two, those who reject with greater revelation will suffer more. All who suffer in eternity in hell apart from God will be in an unbearable punishment and yet there will be some who are in a more unbearable punishment eternally because of the amount of revelation which they have received. Number three, eternal truth that comes out of this verse 15 and verses 14 and 15 together. We of all people today, we here, you here, Right now, we are of the greatest accountability. We have more accountability than the Jewish villages who rejected the 12 disciples. Say, how can that be? We've done this before. Let's turn in our Bibles to the very end, almost to the very end, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you something in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter was one of these 12 disciples. He writes this letter of 2 Peter. <clears throat> he says in verse 16, Vindica or providing a vindication for their actions as apostles, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, Peter says, I saw the majesty of Jesus Christ in his presence. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, verse 17 says, and the voice was born to him by, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. Any clues to what's going on here? This is the transfiguration. It's a big fancy word for when Jesus revealed his glorified body, he revealed himself in all of his heavenly glory to Peter, James, and John, the three disciples who were closest to him. We find this in Matthew chapter 17. Peter says, I didn't come to you with some um, myth that I came up with on my own. I came to you as an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus Christ because I was there and I heard God the Father speak and I saw Jesus in person. You say, who could ever trump that? I mean, what could there be that is more meaningful than seeing Jesus Christ in his glorified body? What could there be that could be more authoritative than someone who had seen Jesus Christ in person? Maybe you've thought to yourself, if only I could get my unsaved family members back into Matthew's time and let them see the miracles of Jesus, then they would believe. I mean, what could be more convincing than seeing Jesus himself? Well, I'm glad you asked because Peter tells you what's more convincing in verse 19. It says in verse 19, and we have something more sure. Really? There's something more sure than seeing the glorified Christ? Yes, there is. In verse 19, we have something more sure, namely the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy has ever was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Judgment will come to all who reject Christ, and it will be eternal. It will be unbearable. And yet those who have received more revelation will receive a more unbearable punishment in the day of judgment. And thirdly, we carry the most accountability of all people because we have the completed prophetic word that is more sure than even the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. If you're under the sound of my voice, you are accountable for how you respond to the Messiah this morning. And hell will be hotter for those who reject Christ in the face of the completed and perfect revelation of his word. Second, spirit intended and current implication. The king has every right to control our lives as his servants. Okay? What are the big truths that pop off of 5 to 15? When we're reading this in our daily reading and we're saying, I've got a life to live. I've got stuff going on. I've got a family to raise. I'm trying to be married to this person and it's not going well. I'm struggling in these ways and that ways. And I'm reading 5 to 15. What comes out of this? What comes out of this is as a follower of Christ, the Messiah has every right to tell me anything and everything to do with my life. He's trustworthy. He's big enough, strong enough, good enough to tell me everything to do and for me to obey him without regard. The king is, he's, he's got the rights to my life. That changes tomorrow, folks. 5 to 15 is a display. It's a description of the sovereignty, the rulership of Jesus, the lordship 
of Jesus Christ. It's his right. It's his prerogative to tell us as his servants to do exactly as he sees fit. And he does on the pages of your New Testament. That's his place. Your place is to obey him. My place is to obey him. He defines your role in the world in which you live. You do not get the right to be another worker at the workplace. Jesus defines who you are at the workplace. He's your master. You are not just another employee. You are an employee who is a servant of Christ. You do not get to be another housewife or another husband or another businessman or another business. You don't get that prerogative because you are those, whatever your situation in life, you are that with the designation of servant of Christ. You are a slave of Christ. He defines your role in your family. Wives, he defines who you are in the home. He defines how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to your children, dads, husbands. He is the one who gets to tell you what to do. You don't get that right because you serve Jesus Christ. This is what we give up when we come and lay our lives before Christ as the only perfect good substitute, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. This is what it is to live in his kingdom. Not only that, he defines the message of his people. He's the one who tells us what to say. He gives us his word and we simply come back and we speak his word. It's his wisdom. He has the right to define the message for his body, the church. He's the head. He gets to distinguish what we say how we say it, what we do and how we do it. He tells us what his words are. He demands of us that we remain faithful to his word alone. He demands that we are faithful without compromise for the sake of his gospel. And that is his right. He demands the way the body lives together, works together, grows together. He defines for us what the church is and is to be about. And that is his right. These are timeless truths that flow from verses 5 through 15. The Messiah King has every right to your life. And the Messiah King will stand as judge on the judgment day. These two principles just pop straight off of the page. And they inform our conscience. They inform our thinking. They allow the Holy Spirit to apply this text to our lives. Can we, can we imagine really living life with Jesus Christ as the master? Do we really think that he has the right to tell us what to do? You say, sure. Jesus can tell me what to do. I'm waiting. No, Jesus can tell me what to do. I'm reading and submitting. He's already spoken. He's already outlined it. Do we really believe that Jesus will stand in judgment over all those who reject him? Do we really believe that there's hell? Do we really believe that God will judge eternally those who turn their back on Christ? Do we really believe that? 
How in the world can we stare into the face of the same people day in and day out and day in and day out, knowing that apart from a gracious work in their hearts through the proclamation of the gospel, they will be in that judgment? Really? Verses 5 through 15 must affect us. They are profitable. They are beneficial for your life and for my life as kingdom citizens. A couple questions just to close out our time. Kingdom citizens, Christians, will you give your life away this week to the plans, priorities, and passions of your king? Okay? We're going to do this? Are we really going to do this? Are we really going to come to 5 to 15 and say, wow, look at what Jesus does when he mobilizes his missionaries. Look at the details that he takes. Am I really willing to let him have that kind of control in my life? Unbelievers, those of you who are here this morning and you have never known Christ, you've never given your life to him, you do not follow him as your Messiah, you do not know him, you do not know his forgiveness, his love, his affection, his care and leadership in your life, you do not know eternal life, granted by the Father through the Son. You don't know the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you this morning what has already been stated. Jesus is the only, only Messiah. That is, He is the only Savior for sinners. God is holy. God is perfect. He's without sin. Nobody can be in His presence who bears sin on them. And that's a big problem for you, unbeliever, this morning because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We are all sinners. And that means we are all separated at the point of birth. We're separated from the Father. We are in need of restitution. We're in need of somebody fixing the problem. But but we can't fix the problem. We're sinners to the core. And we can't do enough good works to offset our sin. We can't get rid of it. It's nagging. It's there. It's always present. It's touching every part of our lives. Therefore, we're all under condemnation. Here's the good news. In all of that condemnation, God and his love and his grace, unmerited affection, sent his son to stand in for sinners who believe. That's what he did. He sent his son and he killed his son. He killed his son, not just for his own sake, but for the sake of rescuing sinners. For his own glory. He sent his own son to stand in as a substitute. And every sinner who will turn and give their life to Christ. Who will look at Jesus as the perfect substitute. Who will believe by faith that that work at the cross accomplished God's wrath. They will be forgiven. They will have condemnation removed. But let me leave you with a warning to leave this morning and to not embrace the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. To leave this morning and reject the king in his kingdom is to face a more severe judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah and an even more severe judgment than the Jewish villages that were touched by the short-term mission trip of Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. Unbeliever, don't leave this morning 
without turning from your sin and your efforts for righteousness and believing that Jesus is sufficient at the cross, that he is sufficient in his resurrection to provide eternal life for you. If you will believe, God will save you. He will rescue you from your sure judgment on that day. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the strength to accomplish this study this morning. Thank you for the insights that your spirit gives us as we come to your word for the understanding that he provides. Teach us to be careful students of your word. Teach us to see the timeless truths in the descriptive parts of our Bibles so that we might know experientially what it is to have profit from every single word of our Bible. What a gift, what a treasure, what a lamp to our feet and a light to our path your word is. We praise you for the power and the authority and the majesty of our King. We want our lives to reflect our submission to him and our desire to see his kingdom exalted, his mission accomplished, his glory made known to others. Father, I pray for those finally who are here with us who may have professed to be followers of Christ for years and years and years, who may have associated with your people for years and years and years, who have never known you. They have never known the power of the good news of Christ. They have never known the transforming work of regeneration, of life being given where there's death. They have never been born again. They have never known the transfer of guilt from their life to the innocent substitute Jesus and the transfer of perfect righteousness from Jesus to their sinful account. They have never known these truths. May they bow their knees, crush them, break them, Father. Bring them to salvation. Bring them as trophies of grace before your throne. This is your work. We desire to be a part of it. We want to be proclaimers. We want to be models of grace so that we can bring glory and honor to you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.